0: Hey, everyone. Before we get started with the show today, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast we've just discovered. It's called Trump on Earth. They're doing a fantastic job keeping track of all of the changes coming out of Washington when it comes to the environment. Here's their host, Reid Fraser.
2: With the election of Donald Trump, Americans selected a man who's questioned widely accepted science on climate change.
0: I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. It could be warming and it's going to start to cool at some point. And pledged to
2: overthrow whole swaths of our environmental regulations. On the Trump on Earth podcast, we're tracking what the Trump administration and Congress can and will do with environmental rules most Americans take for granted.
0: Turns out he doesn't have the power as president to cancel international agreements, but he can do smaller versions of those kinds of things. And what it'll mean for
2: the state of the environment.
0: I guess having a sharp eye for the, the different shades of climate change denial is uh, more relevant than ever.
2: Trump on Earth. We're watching what the government does as much as what it says. And what that means for you. On iTunes, NPR One, or trumponearth.org.
0: And with that, oh yeah, you know what's coming next. How many years ago was our planet born? 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million.
1: Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55
0: million. Primates appear. 2.3 million million, 200,000, 20,000,
1: agricultural,
0: revolution.
1: industrial,
0: revolution, 60, great animals. acceleration, the Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we feature stories and conversations about planetary change. I'm Leslie Chang. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Plastics.
2: Exactly how do you mean?
0: There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. That was the infamous scene from The Graduate where Dustin Hoffman's character is confronted with plastics. And plastics are everywhere, right? Right. In fact, there's a decent case to be made that plastics could be the critical marker of the Anthropocene boundary, especially given that they're derived from fossil fuels. But in so many ways, this miracle of material science can be misunderstood. While images of plastic pollution like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch represent all that is wrong with our wasteful culture, the truth is that we also all benefit from plastic materials. On today's show, we're bringing you a conversation between producer Miles Trayer and Odile Madden. Odile is a research scientist and plastic expert at the Smithsonian's Museum Conservation Institute. Here's Miles and Odile.
1: Hey, Miles. Hey, Odile. Okay. Hi, my name is Odile Madden, and I am a material scientist at the Smithsonian's Museum Conservation Institute.
2: Great. So th- this was a weird question because I was like looking around online because I was like super excited to talk plastics and all the stuff that they leave. And I came across this article about plastic, plastic glomerate. I have no idea how to pronounce that name. Uh, but I was it's like a mix of like plastic and rock and sand. Have you ever encountered this stuff?
1: <laughs> it's so funny you mentioned this. I haven't. But when that paper came out within a Few days, like ten people had either emailed it to me or left it on my office chair. Um, People thought that I would definitely get a kick out of this. Plasticglomerate is globs of plastic mixed in with rocks and sand and bits of shells that were found on Camilo Beach in Hawaii, and so it's the remains of a campfire essentially. Uh, And. An artist, Kelly Jasvak, and a geologist, Patricia Corcoran, and an oceans activist named Captain Charles Moore got together and wrote an article about it uh, suggesting that it is a future fossil of the Anthropocene. So this would be what our legacy of plastic left everywhere might look like. Uh, So in that sense, it's a thought experiment. So if you were to think about looking back on our plastic, if these plastics survived you could say something about the technology of making plastic back at the time these plastics melted in with the rocks
2: i want to i want to sort of step back you're a material scientist yes and you study plastics yes and i'm curious how did you get interested in studying plastics in particular what was the you know aha moment where you're like yes this is something i want to study
1: it's interesting because my primary job is not to study plastics in relation to the Anthropocene. I work in the museum context where we are interested in preserving artifacts and artworks. And we are collecting in all museums increasing amounts of plastic.
0: Uh,
1: We have it in the objects that we collect and also the materials we use to store the objects. So the trays, the baggies, uh, the foam, it's often plastic. And we're having trouble as we discover that many of these plastics are not stable over the long term. And by the long term, I don't mean a couple of years. I mean over the terms that uh, museums expect. So theoretically in perpetuity. Uh, But we're finding these plastics don't last as long as that they turn yellow and crack and shrink and get sticky and give off noxious vapors. I'm watching plastics that fall apart, and I'm hearing simultaneously in our popular culture that plastics never go away. I'm like, oh, yes, they do. <laughs> they go away in my laboratory <laughs> rather spectacularly. So I am someone who's, I grew up near the beach. I'm interested in the beach and it being a beautiful place, and I was a bit dismayed was very dismayed by the amount of plastic I was seeing on beaches. So at some point it just clicked for me that the same skill set I'm using to look at plastic artifacts, I can apply that towards looking at plastic garbage. It's the plastic we don't want to go away that we want to keep versus the plastic we want to go away.
2: You know, already uh, in in this conversation, we've said, you know, plastic, the word a bunch of times. And I realized in in researching a little bit, plastic is not a singular thing. <laughs> you know, it, it's a little bit like saying curry. There are a lot of different kinds of curry. There are a lot of different kinds of plastic. Can you give to the best of your ability sort of a definition of plastic? <laughs>
1: Um, Yeah, plastic is, I hadn't thought of it this way, but plastic is very much like curry, um, a solidified curry. Um, But plastic is many kinds of materials uh, based on carbon, a type of molecule called a polymer. uh, And... A polymer is made up of carbon atoms in a daisy chain kind of arrangement, Uh, and these carbons are organized into chains that are thousands, tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands of units long. Is there such a thing as a natural plastic?
2: Like a naturally occurring plastic?
1: Yes, uh, yes, there are naturally occurring plastics. They're naturally occurring polymers. Our bodies are made up of proteins. those are also polymers, very long molecule chains based on carbon and nitrogen. Uh, so our DNA is a polymer. Yes, yeah, so these it does exist in nature. The most common in the world is cellulose, and that is the structural material of wood, of linen, cotton, which is worked then into our paper and blue jeans uh, and houses. Uh, And it has been modified into different, they're called semi-synthetic polymers that might as well be called semi-natural. So cellulose, uh, it doesn't melt. So that means you can't really mold it into anything. And it does this because there are really strong hydrogen bonds between the cellulose molecules. But it would be really useful since we have so much cellulose to be able to turn it into something that we could melt into a goo or dissolve into a goo that we could then form into something like threads or solid objects, right? In the mid-19th century, it was discovered that mixing cellulose with nitric acid made a type of goo. And that goo was subsequently worked by several people, but one that we give credit to in the United States is a man named John Wesley Hyatt. He mixed it with camphor and made a pliable mass that he called celluloid. And celluloid was great. He used it to make the first synthetic billiard ball. The idea was to solve some critical impending shortages of elephant ivory, which is what we were using for billiard balls and many other things that we build from plastic today. So That was the first thing it was made into. Subsequently, it turns out that celluloid catches on fire quite spectacularly, and it burns in such a way that it makes its own combustion products, so it can't be put out with water. So this was a big public safety hazard. Uh, So eventually, cellulose nitrate gets replaced by something called cellulose acetate and then cellulose acetate butyrate. So cellulose was modified into all of these materials that you could um, mold and it was one of the earliest plastics for us and an extremely popular one.
2: That is absolutely bananas that they were able to go that that quickly through those different sort of iterations of of the material.
1: Right. It doesn't take like the Stone Age lasted, you know, a couple million years. Then the Bronze Age lasts, you know, I think it's like a thousand years. It takes a long time to work with this one group of metal alloys and now plastics were innovating in um you know over decades you see huge changes happening
2: it's funny you mentioned that because, you know, we we do sort of talk about, you know, human boundaries in terms of those sort of innovations. You know, the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age in geology, we refer to them in some different time scales. But I've heard you say before that you know we're now in the, the plastic age.
1: Right. So 2.6 million years ago, you see people picking up found objects and working them into s- tools like a, a good tool for pounding would be a stone with a rounded bottom that's harder than the thing you're trying to hit.
2: Yet arrowheads arrowheads and flint and those types of objects at, at some point.
1: Exactly. And so from there... We moved into, there was a discovery that one could not just have to find native metals, one could smelt them out of ores, which seemed pretty magical at the time, right? Turning a rock into a metal. Uh, That's when you move into the Bronze Age, the smelting together of copper and arsenic and then copper and tin. And then the Iron Age, similar thing. You're smelting out iron and mixing it with various uh, elements and making things that turn into bridges, skyscrapers, and so forth. So... The idea is that looking at materials can tell you about what people were capable of. And by looking at culture, you can learn something about the materials. So I think plastic, even though we maybe don't esteem it so much right now, it's changed our world sufficiently that we're going to want to document it as a major material achievement. And it's the material that's defined the 20th century and probably will continue to define a large part of the 21st
2: yeah i mean you can't go anywhere on this planet and not run into a plastic somewhere right i mean it's, it's everywhere
1: yeah it's everywhere and that's what we make our tools out of right
2: I mean, yeah, the the computer, the microphone I'm talking to you on, like all of this stuff is plastic and so we carry plastics around on our backs and our clothes in some cases, right? Are have yeah. those same polymers.
1: Yep. Uh polar fleece, polyester, acetate, acrylic, all of those fibers are just extruded plastic fibers.
2: So I don't I don't know if if this is how it necessarily would work, and this is a bit of a, a weird thought experiment. In geology, if we were to look for a start of the plastic age, you know, we would look for a consistent signal. Um, is is there a consistent plastic that we might find as sort of the onset of the plastic age?
1: So I've got two. Personal favorite ideas. One's a little sillier than the other, perhaps. Um, in 1951, Phillips Petroleum developed a catalyst that could transform ethylene and propylene gas into a solid polymer, a waxy-like goo, and that's we now know as polypropylene and polyethylene. And this material didn't catch on for about seven years, but in 1958, Whammo the toy company, made the hula hoop, made a hula hoop out of plastic. In fact, hula hoops had existed for thousands of years. But they introduced, I believe it's a polyethylene hula hoop. And in two years, they sold more than a hundred million of these worldwide. What? <laughs> yeah. So this in nineteen fifty-eight this was such a global success. Like it was such a fad that if you could find evidence of a hula hoop <laughs> or a piece of a hula hoop. So some pink plastic with white stripe across it, that's obviously a fragment of something that was a curved tube conceivably, you would have your marker, right? And I say that, it's a bit silly sounding, um, but it has some deeper thought in it. Uh, The chromium catalyst that Phillips Petroleum used, one could say, okay, before 1951, polyethylene might have existed, it didn't exist in large amounts, and there certainly wasn't polyethylene with chromium. So there should be some residual chromium in there. And then since then, polyethylene and polypropylene have grown into our most common commodity polymers. I mean, so much of this is made in the world. So when you look at not the plastic bottle, but the bottle cap. Um, our toothbrushes, all sorts of plastic things that we use every day are made out of polypropylene and polyethylene. So I think polyethylene and polypropylene are a certain possibility. And if you could find a, fra- a fragment of Hula Hoop, that would be awesome. Um, my second idea is in 1952, uh, a company called Brown and Williamson introduced a cigarette filter made of cellulose acetate. And a cigarette filter is a very oddly shaped thing. It's a cylinder made of many compressed fine white fibers. So the most common garbage you find in an urban shore cleanup is cigarette filters. So they're everywhere beginning in 1952. And the neat thing about a cigarette filter though, let's see, in archeology span often the thing that's found is not the same material that it started out as uh, petrified wood is an example. It's been, it's a wood that's been replaced by minerals, right? So even if a cigarette filter were to be compressed and all the cellulose acetate were to be eaten away by microorganisms, you could retain what's called a pseudomorph, and it would be this funny thing that probably would be squished. But you could imagine that at one point it looked like a round cylinder of many compressed fibers. So. It's possible that I think the cigarette filter could be our time horizon marker. We have, you know, really talented people at the museums who, and really dedicated people at the museums who work on these questions, but um, at the National Museum of American History, one of the Smithsonian museums, there are at least three McDonald's styrofoam clamshell hamburger boxes. If you're, you you would not
2: remember these, would you? Oh, I know. Uh, I very much remember those.
1: Okay, so I know they have one for a McDLT. I think there's one for a quarter pounder. And these were meant to last, you know, through some life in a storage room until they had their big moment keeping a hamburger warm. And then they got tossed, right? And now there are a few in the Smithsonian collection and they're supposed to last forever. There is now a collection at the same museum of the plastic lids that go on coffee cups because these are important indicators of our culture now right they define how we live they define how we eat which is core to our culture and to our being Uh, so now we have these ephemeral objects that we are tasked with stewarding i don't have an answer of how to stop these things from degrading right the most unstable ones that i look at i am more busy trying to describe what's happening to them at this point
2: i mean it's You know, just hearing about about your research, it's really surprising to me to hear how much plastics break down Uh, again, because I've been told forever that plastics will just be a thing from now until the end of time. Uh, Where where did that idea begin? Why do we think that where where did this idea that plastics could last forever come from?
1: That's a really good question. Uh, I think it's tied to the problem of litter and disposable culture. Uh, So in World War II, we were a frugal people, right? We didn't just use something once and toss it out. Uh, And huge advances were made in plastic manufacturing during World War II, because we had soldiers to outfit, right, with equipment, and, and it had to be made lost. quickly
2: and cheaply, yeah. Right, and identically. Ah, so yes.
1: plastic is not cheap for the raw materials. It's made less expensive as an economy of scale. So if you can mold many identical things, uh, you can do it very quickly. And so the, there's time savings there. So after World War II, we had all of this capacity and nowhere to use it. So... Companies had to think up new ideas of where to put this material, putting it into civilian uses. And one idea that at some point comes up is that if you could make somebody use something once and throw it away, and then use uh, get an identical one and use it and throw it away, that you'd have this market that you need. This right? is kind of the so, birth
2: of planned obsolescence, right?
1: Yes, it really. Yeah, truly. And we had to be taught to do this. So there are advertisements from the time, I guess from the 50s, that describe how a woman could do away with housework if she just uses disposable knives and forks. Why wash a cup? Why be stingy and wash a cup when you can throw it away and get another one? And I think that we were trained on one hand to do this, but on the other hand, I think it was, we have some disgust we feel some disgust for the idea
2: it's it's such a, a strange position to be in with regard to to plastics because you know we we have that disgust that disgust is so real right like the idea of why am i throwing away this water bottle i i literally have a ceramic mug right next to my sink right you know why am i throwing away this water bottle and so there's a disgust to the plastic And yet, at the same time, there's a very dear friend of mine who has a heart implant, and he would be dead without plastics. So, yay, plastic! And there's this weird dichotomy there. And similar to the question I asked you before, do you battle with the sort of disgust of plastics? Do you also battle with the, like, yeah, but plastics are kind of amazing. Like, when you really look at them, they're pretty incredible.
1: Yeah, I think we have, there's a question of balancing ingenuity. Like We have this great ingenuity to create things, and we make some spectacular things, right? We can fly. (laughs) We can send a person into space in a self-contained plastic life suit. Uh, We can outlive our parts, thanks in part to plastic, um, with organ replacements and other prosthetics, that's crazy that we can outlive our own bodies, right? So there's that us using our ingenuity to noble effect. And then there's a sense of responsibility that we have to use it wisely, but we aren't always using it wisely. Somehow we've gotten into a cultural pattern and it's very, it's interesting that it's a cultural pattern, not a material pattern. We blame the plastic as a villain, right? Plastic is awful, But that's really not the problem. It's the way we use it. And that's driven by what we've been sold, but it's also driven by what we buy and what we demand. So it's a cultural question more than a material question.
2: It's it's easier to be able to point to an object and blame the object than turn the hand around and point back at yourself. You know, to use the sort of trite analogy, but it really is right.
1: Um, It's funny how often I hear this conflation of. Anthropocenic problems with plastic so i'll hear someone exclaiming well there's climate change and the planet is getting warmer and the ice caps are melting and the water levels are rising and there's plastic everywhere whoa, whoa, whoa okay logical non sequitur plastic has nothing significant to do with climate change it accounts for you know a few percent of our petroleum use, and that's the materials and the energy used to make the plastics. And arguably a plastic object is sequestering carbon, right? It's not contributing to global warming in the same way that driving your car is. So it's interesting, this loathing of plastic and this blaming of plastic, It's it just gets tied into all sorts of other Anthropocene disgust
2: it's i you know I, i'm repeating myself from earlier in the conversation you know you can't go anywhere on the planet and not find plastic right you know it's it's one of the most widespread if not the most widespread group of materials that we've ever come up with and it's it's kind of it is impressive and it's terrifying at the same time i think for a lot of people as somebody who, who knows this material certainly better than I do and probably better than most people, are there any sort of advancements that you're looking forward to in terms of plastics, whether it's at small scales like, hey, we can finally develop something that will better house these museum objects that need to be preserved for future generations all the way up through save the world type stuff? Is, is there an advancement that you're personally looking forward to?
1: i'm personally looking forward to the day when i figure out how to stop the degradation from happening in the museum plastics yeah um but as i mentioned that seems often like a hopeless pursuit sometimes these uh these plastics seem to have a penchant for entropy and going back to their elements um but i have to say uh god it's a good question um Biomimicry is really interesting right now. So looking at the natural world, actually looking at natural polymers, natural plastics, and getting ideas for ways to synthesize them uh, into, I guess, person-made, human-made plastics. That's really interesting. I can give you an example. There is a professor at uh, Penn State named Malik Demerol. He's a professor of engineering, and he's been looking at squid tooth rings. Squid have a mouth with a ring of solid protein in it that has little teeth on it. Uh, So it looks kind of like a little O-ring and it's this flexible little ring of protein. And Professor Demerol has collected these squid rings and discovered that they are a thermoplastic protein So thermoplastic means that you can melt it or dissolve it, which you know from your hair and your fingernails that most proteins in your body cannot do this. So this is one of those situations like with the cellulose that all of a sudden you have an opportunity to mold and shape a really interesting natural polymer. This protein is apparently very strong uh, and also has an ability to mend itself, so it can be softened in water and repair itself. So you could stick one piece to another piece with by wetting it, uh, and that's a really interesting thing. So self-healing plastics are very exciting. Imagine if your cellphone, um, you could just put a little water on and it healed itself, right?
2: That's like that true science great. fiction stuff, right there. I love it. It is totally right that. I, that is just so out of this world. When you talk to people about plastics, we've mentioned it a couple of times. There's the discomfort, the sort of disgust or, or something about plastics that just doesn't feel quite right to us. What do you tell those people?
1: I know that we are all uncomfortable with plastic. I hear this with people. Um, I, I guess my message is that this discomfort has value. I've learned from my research that we've had big problems with plastics in the past that we have since conquered. One of them is celluloid, the material that caught on fire. This was a big public safety hazard, a plastic that could catch on fire and burn itself out even underwater. And it was contributing to the burning down of movie theaters because it was used as film base. This was a big problem that it was an obvious public safety hazard, but we weren't really willing to do without the celluloid. And in that case, it took us about 50 years to overcome the problem. And we did that by instituting engineering controls. Movie projection rooms were changed such that there were shutters that protected people from the film in case it caught on fire. Uh, projectionists were licensed. Uh, There was even a toilet put in the projection room, so a projectionist would never have to leave during the screening of a film. Um, And all this to say that there have been problems like this in the innovation of plastic that we have overcome. And plastic is still very much in an experimental phase. It's very new. It takes about fifty years for a new material, cellulose acetate, to replace cellulose nitrate and to get up to production where it can be, where it's an actual viable replacement. So that took 50 years, and that was a problem of people being burned to death. So when we're concerned about problems of endocrine disruptors, floating anonymous garbage that we see in our oceans, I think that our discomfort, our caring, motivates people to come up with solutions and slowly will iteratively move towards a better situation. Um, so I tell people that their discomfort has value, but
2: I think that's, that's what great. I tell them. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's very helpful to sort of keep that framing in mind that this is still new. This is still experimental. You know, we, this hasn't been around long enough for us to really have mastered it yet. Um, yeah. I think that's always a helpful point of view to have.
1: Right, and we're talking about the Anthropocene. We're talking about the human race. We're talking about there's, there's me in my lifetime. And, you know, that memory extends back to my great grandparents. Um, I only have a very narrow window and that window of my human experience does not necessarily coincide with the window over which material innovation happens and the cultural big cultural shifts happen. So, It may take longer than we're comfortable with for these changes to happen. But I think that as a people, we're going to move towards a better relationship with plastic.
2: Odile Madden, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure to chat with you and learn a ton more about plastics.
1: Miles, this has been so much fun. I was so excited. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Generation Anthropocene is produced by Miles Trayer, Mike Osborne, Jackson Roach, and me, Leslie Chang. Special thanks also to Tom Hayden and Isha Salian. Our project is supported by Worldview Stanford and Stanford Earth. You can learn more about the podcast online at www.genanthro.com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Gen Anthropocene. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode.